We've been doing a 52-week series called His Story. And it's an effort to take 52 verses and to frame the story of Jesus. I remember calling a friend of mine who teaches at Lipscomb, and I asked him, I said, have you ever picked just 52 verses uh, to help kind of give a picture of who Jesus was? And he said, I was asked to do that. And so he said, I sat down and when I finished, I had 82 verses. And so he said, it was kind of hard to, you know, tell the story of Jesus in 52 verses. Well, you can't tell the story of Jesus in 52 verses. And that's not what we're trying to do. He said, the Bible basically goes from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 to tell the story of Jesus. That's how many verses. God wanted to use in telling the story of Jesus. But what we've been trying to do is simply to frame the story of Jesus. To kind of give us an idea of, you know, what was his mission? What did he do? And what is our response to that? And in last week's lesson and this week's lesson are two of the most important lessons in this entire 52-week series. And you say, well, that's, that's your opinion. That's not my opinion. It's what Jesus tells us. You see, if you remember from last week, Jesus is in the upper room. It's the last night of his life. He is literally six hours from being betrayed, 12 hours from being nailed to a cross. And he is trying to just literally put as much into his apostles as he possibly can in these last few hours. How many of you grew up drinking out of a water hose at the house? Have you ever experienced that? You know, it, you haven't grown up until you were a kid and you were hot and sweaty and tired and thirsty and you went to the house, turned on the water outside, and you drank from the water hose. There are a lot of kids today who have never done that. We're ruining the next generation. They need to, there's nothing like water hose water. Amen? I mean, there's something unique about it. But, but the apostles were not drinking out of a water hose that night. They were drinking out of a fire hose. Jesus had turned the spigot on full blast, and his teachings were just coming out as fast as he possibly could, giving his final thoughts to his apostles. And John, years later, that apostle who was up there trying to absorb as much as he could reflects on it, and two things in particular came out. Two things that he said, you know what? More than anything else, if you want to remember something about Jesus, remember these two. Last week was John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I love you, so you must love one another. And then the most important part of it, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, in this text, you've got several points. The first point being, Jesus takes the commandment that everyone, you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and he changed it. It's not love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's love one another as I have loved you. A new standard that he gives. And then, of course, as I said, I think one of the most important parts by this, everyone will know. We just got through saying, they'll know we are Christians. By our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know. 
week was to throw up these three pictures right here and simply ask the question, what comes to your mind when you see each one? And, and we just kind of bounce around some of the thoughts about that because all of us, when we see Vanderbilt, Tennessee, Alabama, immediately search images, search off certain emotions come to our minds. The same is true about these. What do you think of when you see that? I tell you what I think of, hot french fries. That's what I think of. Hot french fries. If I'm going to get french fries, I want McDonald's french fries, fresh out of the fire, salted just right, and then just leave me alone. I'm good to go. They'll ask me sometimes, do you need ketchup? No, I don't need ketchup. You don't want to ruin McDonald's french fries with ketchup unless they get cold. And then you're going to have to ruin them somehow, you know. But it's hot McDonald's french fries. But you know, if I'm going to eat a steak, I don't go to McDonald's, right? If I want to eat a steak, I'm going to go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Especially if you're by, you know. I mean, that, that's when I go there. And, and, and by the way, you don't go to Ruth's Chris to get French fries. And you don't go to McDonald's to get steak. But here's my question. If someone were to hear the name Andersonville Church of Christ, what would come to their mind? What would be their first thought? And we explored that last week just a little bit because it deals with this whole issue of what identifies people as the people of God. What is it that identifies us? And Jesus is the one who establishes that here the last night of this life. Now, a lot of us could say, well, there's a lot of things that identify us. It's the sign that's on the building outside. It's how we do worship on the inside. It's what we teach about our response to the gospel and how we need to believe and be baptized. And all of those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But what we as followers of Jesus have got to do is listen to what He said is important. Because I've got to tell you that oftentimes what I put up there in the very top echelon of what's important in the kingdom of God, Jesus looks at and says, Oh no, you're not even close. It's time we listen to what he said on the last night he was on the earth with his disciples before going to the cross. I mean, when Jesus says, this is what, you, what makes you stand out from everybody else in the world as disciples of mine, we need to take those things seriously. And the first one, last week's lesson, love one another. And then all you have to do is turn over just a couple of pages in your Bible and you come to that second one. It is one that is given of all times when Jesus is praying. Believe it reminded me this morning as he was doing communion. You know, and, and again, like, thank you so much for your thoughts. But there have been times, I told you this, I said there have been times that I have been in services where the communion talk went longer than my sermon did. And, and you're like, really? Oh, yeah. And i got to be honest with you, the communion talk was probably a lot better than my sermon. I mean, sometimes what we say around the table is really, really super-duper important, and as much time as it takes, it's what we need to get to. And yet, at the same time, I've also heard people get up and do communion talks that had nothing to do with communion. They simply had a sermon they wanted to preach, and here was their chance to preach it. 
I've heard people pray before, and you probably have as well, who turned prayer into a podium. Who basically said, here's my opportunity to say something to the church, and if I have to say it as if I'm speaking to God, that's what I'm going to do. Now, we might accuse Jesus of doing this. But I think when Jesus does it, we need to recognize that it's okay. Because Jesus does in many ways in this prayer. John 17 is this high priest prayer of Jesus. Right before he goes to Gethsemane. But in that prayer, notice what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe on me through their message. And then here again, one of those points he wants us to remember. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me. And I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world, there it is again, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One of the things I love about this is that this is one of the, in fact, only times I know of that Jesus prayed for me and you. Specifically. I mean, most of the time he's praying for people in his day. He's praying for the apostles. He's praying for someone who's hurting. Notice here, my prayer is not for the apostles alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Are you a Christian? Then this prayer is not you. If you believe in Jesus because of the message of the apostles, this prayer is about you. But it's not just a prayer about us. But it's a prayer that focuses on one of the most important parts about being identified as the people of God. And that, that somehow we might be one. Wow. You know, when June and I got married, June and I were pronounced one. Preacher, in fact, quoted what God has joined together. Let no one separate. But can I tell you that becoming one with June was a little bit more difficult than I thought? You see, uh, the, the way I looked at marriage was real simple. June and I would get married, and then as long as June saw everything the way I saw everything, we were going to be okay. But it didn't take me long to realize that that's not the way it works. In fact, not long at all. We found that we were on different pages on a lot of things. Unity is still a work in process after 41 years. And you know what? Being a church and being one is just as difficult. This unity of the disciples of Jesus. In fact, one of the things that you find as you begin to work through the New Testament is that it becomes a central theme of, for instance, the book of Acts. This whole concept that, Father, I need them to be one, just as you are in me and as I am in you. It becomes a central theme in the epistles. I mean, it becomes the focus of the apostle Paul. Every time, pointing back to what Jesus taught here, Last week we said the measuring stick of love is no longer self-love, but Jesus' love. Well, the measuring stick of unity is the Godhead itself. And Jesus said, can I explain what unity is like? It's not about Leslie and June in marriage. It's about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Godhead. I mean, you want to talk about a measuring stick, that's a measuring stick. 
Just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. In fact, just a few minutes earlier, Thomas had turned, Philip had turned to Jesus. Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. And Jesus' response is, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, this concept of this remarkable unity of the Godhead. It's important that we practice this so that the world might believe, just as it is, loving one another. And so when you look at books like Acts or Romans, 1 Corinthians, in fact, almost, most of, uh, almost all the epistles of Paul, you see this theme of love and unity coming together. <laughs> Acts off the back. Acts chapter 6, this is the Passion Translation. During those days, the number of Jesus Followers kept multiplying greatly, but a complaint was brought about against those who spoke Aramaic by the Greeks being Jews. You see, Jews were divided up into two groups of people. You had those that lived locally, they spoke Aramaic. And then you had Jews who lived out among the Roman Empire, they spoke Greek. You know, it's, it's kind of like the difference between people who live here in the South, we, we speak Southern. And then you have everybody else in the nation that just speaks American, right? Well, that was the way it was there in Jerusalem. But it created a problem in the Jerusalem church. You see, the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. And you see this division beginning to creep in, the very division that Jesus had preached against. You turn to Acts 15, you have the same thing. You turn to Romans 12. A very simple command, like practice hospitality. How can that be a, a teaching about unity? If you were a Jew, it was. Can you imagine being a Jew and for the first time in your entire life, a Gentile comes to eat at your house? A Gentile. I mean, do you know what the Gentiles are like? They're unclean. You've been called that all of their life, all of your life. You can't even touch one because if you touch a, a Gentile, you become unclean. If one comes into your house, your house becomes unclean. And so how in the world do first century Christian Jews invite Gentiles in their house? They've been taught all of their life. You don't do that. And if you're a Gentile, can you imagine being a Jew invited to a Gentile's house? What are they going to serve? Are they going to have catfish? Are they going to have pork chops? You being a Jew, knowing that you can't eat catfish, you can't eat pork chop, and yet, is that what they're going to serve you? Are they going to be conscientious of the dietary restrictions you have? I mean, you see the problem with something as simple as Paul saying, practice hospitality? It has to do with unity. You turn over to 1 Corinthians, right off the bat, Paul says, guess what? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you. He knew that there was. They were lining up behind their favorite preachers. You know, I like Paul better. I like Apollos better. I like Peter better. I mean, here we go. Turn over Galatians. Paul tells about a potluck where Peter did not practice what the Lord prayed. Where when Jewish Christians came up from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentile brethren. And they walked in the church building. And what did he do? He took his plate, picked it up, and carried it over here to where his Jewish brethren was. 
And when he did it, other Jewish brethren, even to the point of Barnabas doing it, and Paul said, how dare you do that? And destroy the unity of the church. Turn over to Philippians. Philippians is, is one of these little books that's a book of joy. When you get to the end of it, Paul sees something that's threatening the joy of the Philippian church. And so he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. Here's two sisters, two matriarchs in the church. I've heard people down through the years say, well, Church of the Christ don't believe in female elders. You've never been in Church of Christ. I've seen female elders all my life. Just out of curiosity, was anybody in here ever taught by a lady by the name of Pam Anybody ever have Miss Pam as a teacher? Okay, we got a few. Miss Pam was a teacher at Good Pasture. When I tried out at Northside some now 30 years ago, one of the elders walked up to me right after I tried out that night and he says, Guess what? I said, What? He said, Miss Pam used to like you. And I thought, What in the world is that thing? Do you know what it meant? It meant I was going to get hired. That's exactly what it meant. I mean, once this Pam gave me a thumbs up, rest the elders, that's the term I use, rest the elders. <laughs> I mean, this Pam was one of those female matriarchs in the church that made a difference. Never church has them. Unity is maintained by two practices, two very important practices. Number one is you've got to agree on a foundational doctrine. Paul, back in Philippians, Philippians is a great book on, on unity. But notice some of the things he says here. If you have any encouragement being, from being united in Christ, very important doctrine. God's love, another important doctrine. Inquiring of the Spirit, sharing of the Spirit. Here Paul is as he's trying to create unity at Philippi between these two sisters. And he says, by the way, you notice that you share in Christ, you share in God's love, and you share in the inquiring of the Spirit. Doesn't that make a difference in your life? Or you go to Ephesians 4. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you receive by making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul says here, you've got to fight for unity. And then he tells us why. Because there's only one body of Jesus. There's only one Spirit that we participate in. There's one hope that we believe in, one Lord we confess, one faith that we all have as we go into the waters of the one baptism, and one God and Father that we all pray to. And here's Paul saying, those are those foundational stones on which unity is built. Now, what do we do? We come along, and what we do is we take the foundational unity principle, and we split over. We say, yeah, the Holy Spirit's important, but how does the Spirit indwell? And if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian the same way I believe, then guess what? I can't have fellowship with you. Seriously? Do we take that, which Paul says is the foundation for our unity, and then divide the one body over it? It has over and over and over again. But then the second principle, because the only way to make the first one work is to practice the second one, which, which is a Christ-like spirit and attitude. Paul knew that. And so in Philippians 2, he 
He's going to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's not about you. It's not about being conceit. But it's in humility, valuing others above yourself. And I've got to be honest with you. That's the hardest thing there is to do in the world. For less chaplain to be humble. And to realize that other people's opinions are more important than his. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And by the way, you know what it takes to, to know the interests of others? You've got to listen. You've got to close your mouth and open your ears and hear what, where other people are in their journey with God. I like the way the Passion Translation puts it. And I'm going to leave you with these words. Be free from pride-filled opinions. They will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your heart, but in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. <laughs> Abandon every display of selfishness and possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own. Here to serve you. Rod's here, he's sitting up here. If you need prayers from one of our shepherds, Mike Ryan's up here in the balcony as well. I'd be honored to pray with you. If you'd like to exercise that faith and become one in that baptism, we're here to assist you. Please just see us as soon as services is over and we'll be happy to help you. At this time, we'll